Hey, 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 welcome to Pop Culture Quorum Deo. I am one of your regular hosts, Jeff Wright. Sadly, Jared Moore is not with me on this one, but I do have a treat for you guys. This is a podcast I have been looking forward to recording for a long time and one that I cannot wait to put in front of you. I am bringing on my friend, Joe Davis, who is an academic, uh, a man who truly understands good stories, and also a guy who really loves Star Wars. And he is going to make a case for Star Wars as a great cultural epic, particularly the American epic. And like I said, uh, this one I have real high hopes for, and I'm delighted to put in front of you because I think it's awesome. And uh, I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. So uh, buckle up. We're going to get started talking about Star Wars with Joe Davis, and particularly Star Wars as the great American cultural epic. Joseph Davis Esquire, man, it is good to talk to you. Thanks for being on the podcast today. It's great to be on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Are you surviving the uh, Corona quarantine okay? We're taking it one day at a time over here in, uh, what is it, Midway South or <laughs> Midway East, whatever, Rick, Rickman location. Yeah, good deal. Good deal. Yeah, we're doing all right. How about you, buddy? You doing okay? Yeah, we're okay. I've I've been joking with people that the road I live on should be named social distancing just because it's so far out in the country. <laughs> and, uh, you know, right now my county, which this is like, this is like saying my ranch, but my county has no confirmed cases of COVID-19. And, uh, that's because we have like 15 people who live in the entire county. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. I, I actually did hear on the news, Overton's got one confirmed case as of two o'clock yesterday. I think it was. Okay. So it has officially entered our domain. Yeah, man, it's encroaching. <laughs> Let me get some hand sanitizer real quick. So, um, man, I'm. we've been planning to do this episode for a while, and I am pumped to talk to you about this subject. Um, as we're recording this, obviously Rise of Skywalker has come and gone from the theater. It's been out digitally for quite some time, and I think Monday is when it releases on physical media. So it's an apt time to talk about Star Wars. But what we're doing is taking kind of a meta look at Star Wars as a cultural epic, which this this entire idea uh, is yours. You raised it to me, I think, uh, over a a church lunch one day, and I'm fascinated by it. So we're going to talk about the Star Wars saga as our cultural epic. Um, Before we do that, though, I think we need to get our bona fides on on the uh, the record. So what's your relationship to Star Wars as a franchise? Uh man, it's a love-hate relationship. Uh it's complicated is my Facebook <laughs> status. Um no, I I love Star Wars. I've always loved Star Wars. Um was introduced to it at a pretty young age. Um actually kind of went backwards forwards. So I started with Return of the Jedi and Good. then awesome. yeah, yeah, it was great. And then thought, wow, that's amazing. And then my dad was like, here, you need to see how we got here. And uh, showed me the other two films of the original trilogy. And for, for like most people, um, probably my age is probably the last bastion of uh, Star Wars fans who hold on to the original trilogy as like, this is my Star Wars. Mm. Um, it wasn't too long after me that that the prequels would probably be what people point to for my wife is my example she's four years younger than i am and the prequels are like her star wars and so uh 
which causes lots of marital discord. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so I, I mean, I've, I've been a huge fan for a long time. Um, I think that Star Wars is it's just one of those stories that really sticks to you. So um, it it's it's one that I love to talk about. It's one I love to argue about. I, I will say this as as we get started. Anytime you talk about Star Wars, uh, it's always going to cause people to take sides and, um, you know, they're going to say things uh, that maybe rub people the wrong way. But I love that about Star Wars because it's, you know, it's because we care. We, we love this story. Sure. We love this world. We love this uh, lore. And, you know, I, I'm here for it. And I, I'm definitely not one of those people that's like, ah, oh, we all just need to get along. I'm like, nah, the pre the prequels are terrible. So, and the <laughs> sequel trilogy is not that great either. So let's talk about it. So, uh, yeah. And, and, and I'm hope I'm hoping to share some of that today, but I, I love it. I'm here for it. Yeah. That's an interesting point. So star Wars is like a tier two politics and religion, you know, <laughs> yeah. that's an interesting idea, which I actually, I guess one that strikes me as right. And two, speaks to uh, sort of what we're here to talk about. Like these, these stories have rooted themselves at the, at the heart of our collective experience in society. Uh, I mean, for, at least for a great number of us. And so we need to start thinking about this as an epic. So can we just start, maybe that language of cultural epic is foreign to some of our listeners. I know you're a literary guy. I pretend to be one. Um, what do we mean when we talk about a cultural epic? Yeah, I think that this is important um, on, on a couple different levels. Obviously, for our conversation, it, if we're going to talk about Star Wars as a cultural epic, we need to be able to define it. Uh, but cultural epics uh, in the literary tradition, uh, especially in the Western canon, um, but not limited to the Western canon, literary epics are those stories that are created with a certain level of skill uh, that are used – that we look to primarily to ascertain cultural values uh, and, and we look at as being sort of the top tier of uh, storytelling within a culture. And, and I actually have a, a definition here that – this is the one that I use in my classroom. Um, it's not mine. I pulled it from a – a literary study uh, program that I was using in college, but it says an epic poem uh, or an epic uh, epic poem specifically or an epic story is a long narrative poem that's usually about heroic deeds and events that are significant to the culture of the poet. It uses an elevated tone and specific literary devices to create a sense of awe. And it was actually this definition I was reteaching the Odyssey, which is sort of the primo. Uh, epic that we teach in um, in high school, and it was when I came across this definition again in my studies that I was like, "Dang, that's Star Wars! Like, that's what we're talking about when we talk about Star Wars, the original trilogy." And so, uh, an epic is that narrative poetic work that focuses on heroic deeds and the significant cultural aspects of the writer, of the poet, of the author. And I think that's what George Lucas does. Yeah. Okay. So I had sent you some of these questions by email, getting ready for the episode. And and after, you know, what is an epic? Uh, the follow up was why should Christians care? Because obviously this podcast is about helping Christians examine pop culture in the light of God's glory. And so I I don't know. I 
I have this native resonance with the idea of narrative that communicates values. Uh, but if, you know, if someone is new to that kind of uh, language or concept, why would you tell a Christian, like, you should care about cultural epics, these grand narratives that, get, you know, transmit values across the generations and uh, do so by creating awe within us? Why, why should Christians care? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and I have a couple of, my answer is two or threefold, uh, if that's okay. Sure. Um, I think primarily Christians should care about the epics, uh, specifically in the Western canon, um, because these epics are all reflections of the grand narrative of Scripture. Um, C.S. Lewis uh, said it best when he said that uh, Christianity is just a true myth. You know yeah. that that all of the all of these stories uh, that we look at, they are all types and shadows that that point to the truth of the gospel. And so Christians, I think, can one get a lot of personal enjoyment uh, out of these stories by finding those connections and making those connections um, and seeing how, for example, when Odysseus comes back uh, to his bride and destroys all the suitors, you know, that that is uh, a, a type of Jesus destroying sin and death for his church, you know, uh, redeeming his bride. And so, there are so many situations like that that Christians, I think, could take true joy in. And, and it, in connection with that point, cult, these cultural epics that we're talking about are created with a certain set of skill. They're good. They're objectively good. And so Christians can revel in the beauty of the work and allow that beauty, even though it may not specifically say God is great. It is a reflection of God's greatness because all we know from James, right? All good, all good things come from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. And I genuinely see these cultural epics as a good gift that God allows to exist in this world for our enjoyment and also to drive us into deeper fellowship and relationship with him. Hmm. And I think Christians can get that um, from these cultural epics. Yeah, that, there's a ton of meat on that bone. Um, so, again, if, if someone, I'm sure most people listening to this are familiar with the Odyssey. I'm going to assume that a lot of people have read it. Um, but what else are we talking about? Uh, you would say the Iliad. What other like notable epics in the Western canon would you point to as examples of what we're talking about? Sure. So, the, like you said, the the low hanging fruit is the Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, but there are definitely lots of others. The Epic of Gilgamesh actually predates the Iliad and the Odyssey. It's an ancient Sumerian text that follows a lot of the same patterns. Um, it's not quite as refined as mm. Homer's work, but it's still, I think merits discussion. And, and I think it earns its place in this conversation. Um, the Aeneid, which is the Roman version of the Odyssey, uh, composed by Virgil, uh, just after, uh, the turn of the millennia there, uh, is also a really great work. Um, <laughs> we might say it's plagiarized a little bit, but I think he does put his own spin on some things and it, it makes it interesting. Uh, moving forward, you know, you have Beowulf, which is the great Christianized pagan, pseudo pagan, pseudo Christian. <laughs> I don't know how you want to, how you want to look at it, but the great epic of Beowulf, 
um, is also in that conversation. And then, of course, Dante's Inferno uh, moving up through to the Italian, uh, the Macedonian Renaissance. And then my favorite uh, uh, to talk about, and this is not an exhaustive list by far. There are others that could go in here. Uh, but my favorite is Paradise Lost by John Milton, um, who, who essentially takes the creation account of the Bible and turns it into an epic poem. Yeah, I was going to ask about Milton. So I, you know, my wife just detests my take on Shakespeare, but I actually think Milton deserves the credit Shakespeare gets as a writer. And you don't have to agree with that. I know I'm on Crazy Island by myself. I, I mean, you're you're in good company here because Milton is, if I were on an island and could only have one piece of text, it would be Paradise Lost. It's, it's not Shakespeare. I love Shakespeare. I, I think he... I, I know I, I love reading him. I love studying him. He teaches us. I think he teaches us a lot about what it means to be human. But Shakespeare didn't write epic poems, and epic poems are really my bread and butter. They're, they they are what I look to as the crown jewel of literary achievement. Uh, I think everything else falls beneath that to degree. And Shakespeare may be right up there, but man, Paradise Lost is so good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's so good. I'm I'm 100% with you. And so I was curious if you would you would assign it to the category of of epic because you know there's I guess there's this sense of like time will tell if this thing has actually risen to the standard, you know what I mean? Like sure. Uh we've had plenty of time to to experience the Iliad and we've come away pretty pretty convinced this thing is important and some of the best that's ever been produced. And it seems weird, I guess to think about Milton who wrote centuries ago, but nonetheless, it's, it's sort of new on the scene in the, in the epic tradition, if that makes sense to the listener. And so I was just curious if you would have assigned it there. I'm glad to hear you did. Yeah, for sure. And and there are others. I mean, I don't, I don't want to spend too much more time on it, but you know, that's a, that's an interesting conversation. And one that I think, you know, how do we define epic? You know, what does it mean to be epic uh, in this literary tradition? And I think Star Wars is going to meet all those qualifications when we get there. So I'm, I'm excited for it. OK, well, cool. Well, thanks for a good transition as well. So um, one of the things that I think is pretty quickly evident to the Christian mind when you talk about these epics is the idea that it, it transmits values, that it sort of codifies what uh, a, a culture sees as good and evil, upright behavior and wicked behavior, et cetera. Uh, could you give us an illustration of that from one of the uh, one of the epics we've been talking about here so that people who maybe aren't familiar with this idea can can see what we're talking about? Sure. So um, one that I like to point to uh, just to talk about the transfer of cultural values the Aeneid, uh, which was written by Virgil, on uh, he was commissioned by the uh, primo senatus, that is uh, Augustus, which is Caesar's um, heir apparent, uh, and the first real emperor. I mean, technically, it's Julius Caesar, but he only did it for four years. So, uh, the first real lasting emperor of the newly formed Roman Empire. Um, and he commissions Virgil, this poet, uh, renowned poet, to write an epic. And really its purpose is to transfer to the culture the value of statehood, uh, the, the value of patriotic service to one's government. And when you look at the historical context in which it is written, it makes total sense because Rome has just adopted this completely new governmental system 
that is an empire. And so throughout the epic, throughout the narrative, Aeneas, the hero, um, is constantly tempted to abandon his uh, duty, to his civic duty, and is eventually brought back and eventually rewarded. And that's that's how he uh, achieves his ultimate treasure is the founding of Rome is the is the ultimate treasure of that story. And so, you know, that that is pinnacle for us, because one of the things that Westerners really champion and value is patriotism. That's mm. that is a that is a cultural value that has been passed down father to son in the Western tradition. And it really comes from Rome. Um, mm. I mean, we could we could predate it, but the Aeneid codifies it. The Aeneid says this is a part of our DNA. It's a part of our origin. It's a part of who we are in our on a on a microscopic, you know, DNA kind of level. And um, you know, that's something that it's it's interesting when I read it with my students, you know, patriotism is something that they I think find is uniquely American. Uh they like to think of us as uniquely patriotic. And when we read the Aeneid, they their eyes are open to be like, no. We got this from our great, 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 great Western ancestors, the Roman Empire. So, you know, that, that's, a, that's just one example, but it's, I think it's a really telling one um, that the impact of the Aeneid is still being felt today. Oh, that's – yeah, that's excellent. I, I actually – that's all new content to me. So my eyes are kind of wide right here. Uh, that's excellent. So I guess the question that comes to my mind, Joe, is should we call this ancient propaganda – uh, some have, I mean, really to be fair, uh, to be fair to, to Virgil and to Augustus, I think Augustus wanted it to be ancient propaganda. I think Virgil took the calling and the commissioning and made something more out of it. Okay. Okay. But it, it goes beyond ancient propaganda and, and this kind of, now we get to the nitty gritty of literary uh, tradition, literary devices, and how we analyze epic poetry, the elevated tone and the use of poetic devices elevates it above, you know, strictly propaganda. Sure. I think puts it into a different category. But I think it is fair to say that that was what Augustus had in mind when he commissioned it. Yeah. He he wanted um, this thing, this beautiful piece of art that would help his... Uh, subjects come to terms with this new empire that he was initiating. And, and, you know, so I I also kind of want to, this is, this is going to lend into our conversation of Star Wars a little bit. Um, So I want to put a pause right here Uh, to be fair to the empire that I'm talking about right now. That empire is the beginning of the Pax Romana, the, the greatest time of cultural expansion in Roman history and arguably the greatest time of cultural expansion in the Western uh, tradition. So hmm. empires are not maybe always a bad thing, um, but we'll get more on that when we get to Star Wars. Okay. Okay, cool. Well, thank you. That's uh, that's certainly very enlightening. Uh, I'm going to take my hand and let you critique um, m- m- kind of my attempt to summarize um, for Christians, something that C.S. Lewis, who you referenced already uh Taught us. I think it's fair to say both you and I have sat at Lewis's feet uh, in terms of learning about storytelling. 
Sure. Lewis went to doing his apologetics through narrative, uh, specifically with the line, the witch in the wardrobe, rather than propositional truth, because he realized that stories kind of sneak their way into our heart. Yeah. That they they steal past the uh, the guardians. I think he called them watchful dragons uh, <laughs> that guarded us against truths we do not want to encounter uh, that we kind of set up mentally and emotionally. And so you mentioned earlier that these epics really harken back to the ultimate story, um, meaning the story that God is telling about his son through what we call history. Mm. And I see that pretty clearly, I think, uh, with the Odyssey. So I'm going to submit this to the listener and to you. Uh, the listener can't critique me directly, but you certainly are invited to do so. Sure. And I want to do this because I think it helps Christians see how this is useful to us, uh, useful to us in seeing God's glory and loving Christ, but also in talking to our neighbors. It, you know, if they already love the story, uh, it gives us a foot in the door to point them to the one that the story's ultimately making us think about. Yeah. So my understanding is that Odysseus is uh, a, a king who leaves his home, uh, leaves the good things of home, to go battle on behalf of his community uh, in the Trojan War. And this is an, an epic contest full of danger and suffering and loss for him. Uh, but then comes back home, as you've already mentioned, to uh, protect his bride and destroy everyone who would compete for her affections. And and for me, the most satisfying part of the Odyssey is when uh, Odysseus steals back into, uh, I can't remember which room it is, but every suitor who's come to seek the affections of his bride uh, are there in one room, and he has his son lock the door. And, I mean, it's, it's gory and bloody, but he mows down everyone competing yeah. Uh, for her affections. And so what I see is a story ultimately making me think about a Christ who leaves the glory of his kingdom to go and accomplish the will of his father. Uh, and in fact, in doing so, creates his own bride. But history is moving to a time where he destroys every enemy and lives happily ever after with his bride. And so, you know, people who who think they have no regard for for Christ, but they love a good story. Uh, it seems pretty clear to me how the Odyssey says, hey, actually, I think you're going to really uh, resonate with what Christ has done in history. So with my summary there, my analysis there, uh, what did I get wrong? Uh, straighten me out here. Well, I think that the analysis is spot on. If I could just add to it. Yeah, please do. Um, the one in this conversation of good storytelling um, and, and to the listener, just just let me go on the record and say there is good storytelling and there is bad storytelling. Um, and in, in my humblest of opinions, I don't think every story is created equal. And much of it has to do with these themes uh, that we're talking about um, and this ultimate reflection of the of the history that God is uh, the story that God is telling through history. And uh, that's what allows Christians, I think, to revel in the the good stories uh, that have come to us down through the ages. But also let me invite the listener to, to consider the differences because these are areas of opportunity mm. uh, to talk about why. Uh, and by the way, I, I want to, I need to correct something really quick. I said, Lewis was talk, talked about the true myth. That was Tolkien. Um, I was, I was thinking about myth of Poeia, uh, the poem that he wrote. 
Sure. Um, so quick correction on that. Uh, but Lewis also agreed with him, so that's fine. Yeah, he uh, called myths uh, lies breathed through silver. I've always right. thought that was such a beautiful way to, to get at this idea. Yeah, so great. So, um, but there, there are differences, right? The Odyssey is not the gospel because Odysseus is not a perfect um, represent rep, uh, progenitor for mankind, right? Mm. Like he's, he's not a, a person who can stand in the gap for us perfectly um, because he's got a lot of character flaws, right? That Odysseus makes a lot of mistakes and learns a lot of lessons on the way, whereas the, the gospel is plan A and Christ never hesitates mm. uh, in accomplishing his purpose. And so mm. not just the similarities, right, which you highlighted perfectly, and, and I think that those are the things we can revel and glory in, uh, but also the differences are great opportunities to talk about why, as, as uh, Tolkien said, the gospel is the true myth. It, it's different from all these other ones because all these other ones fail to answer all of the questions that arise, but the gospel does. And so, yeah, that, that your, your summary is great. And also look at those differences too. Yeah. You see the glory of Christ as the surpassingly wonderful one, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Great point. Great point. All right. Well, thank you. So we have, uh, you know, we, we've kind of delayed getting to the, the question of the, of the podcast, but uh, now's the time. I think we've got all the, you know, the grammar level stuff established. So let's get into it. How does, how does Star Wars look like or function as a cultural epic for us? Yeah. So there's a lot that I have here and I, I'm, I'm trying not to bore the listener with too much of the nitty gritty, but I want to start uh, this conversation by talking about just some general characteristics of epics, um, specifically epic poetry. Yeah, um, let's do that. Because, well, because Star Wars fits these so well. So uh, for, the, for the listener who might not know, one of the main characteristics of epic poetry, and I'm not going to do them all, but I'm going to do a couple. Uh, and one of the main ones is that epic poems traditionally begin with what we call the invocation of the muse or the appeal to the muse. Hmm. Um, for the listener, the muses were the Greek goddesses of poetry, of the arts. Um, and so the poet, Homer started this tradition, and it's been carried on by many authors since, um, typically before the storyteller uh, begins his narrative, the, the storyteller makes an appeal to uh, some higher power to inspire him to tell this grand narrative. Uh, and so the story essentially is not coming from the poet, but actually from this higher source, right? And that the poet is just the conduit. He's just the one painting the picture, but he's not the one coming up with the picture, so to speak. And uh, so, so that's the idea. But very practically, the appeal to the muse gives the narr- the reader important exposition about the mm. world. It gives us foreshadowing of events to come. Uh, it's, it's an introductory piece. So it serves a very practical purpose. It's beautiful. It's poetic, but it's also very pragmatic, which brings me to what maybe is the most iconic thing about Star Wars, the opening scroll, right? That the opening scroll of Star Wars serves many of the pragmatic purposes that the appeal to the muse does for the ancient epic poem. Hmm. And so while it is not necessarily an appeal to a higher power, there is a short narration that gives us the important details 
and drops us into a new world. And it's not revolutionary, but the structure of it is what sticks out to me. It is very much an appeal to the news. I would encourage the reader, or excuse me, the listener, if you're interested more in this, just go and Google the Odyssey, or if you have a copy, crack it open and just read the first paragraph. Just read the first paragraph and then go and watch the opening scroll to A New Hope. They're very similar in what they accomplish for the narrative. And so right off the bat, George Lucas um, pulls from, draws from this epic tradition in a very practical way and drops it into his narrative. And from that point moving forward, this thing is an epic poem. Hmm. Okay, well, dude, that's fascinating. And if you're telling me you're only hitting a few of those things, if they're all uh, that level of insight, I insist that we put them all on the record. So <laughs> I'll do my best then. I'll do my best. I, I'm just saying, give us everything you feel like giving us because I'm I'm on the edge of my seat. For sure, for sure. So from the opening scroll then uh, of Star Wars, we are dropped into um, into the story. And I want to talk a little bit about that story uh, because George Lucas, this is not a secret. Anybody who's a avid Star Wars fan is not going to be surprised by what I'm about to say. But George Lucas was heavily inspired by the writings of Joseph, Joseph Campbell, who was a renowned is a renowned uh, uh, scholar on mythology, and okay. uh, he was very influential in helping Lucas craft his story because Lucas wanted his story to kind of sit in the vein of these epics that we're talking about. And Joseph Campbell's sort of claim to fame uh, is something that we now regularly call the hero's journey. Okay. Uh, I'm familiar with that. A, sure. Yeah. Yeah. A lot. Most people are familiar with that term. It, it comes from Joseph Campbell. Um, is this where we get, sorry, Joe, I didn't mean to step on this, but I'm just curious if I'm thinking the right thing. Is this where we get the language of like the call to adventure? Yeah, all okay. all that all that okay. wonderful stuff that I'm about. Yeah, I'm, all right, I'm lay it on us then. I'll, I'll, I'll quit talking. Quick rundown. No, you're good, man. You're good. Uh, so Campbell lays out this sort of twelve step program. Um, not to not to be funny, but uh, this sort of twelve step series of events that every great story, specifically every great epic, kind of goes through. He kind of tracked it. He he created a model. He looked at all the epics and said, "Here's all the similarities. Here's what they all do." And he, he coined it the hero's journey, he made a very famous and Lucas uh, used this to help tell his story. And I'm, I'm just going to kind of walk through these steps um, a little bit. I'm not going to hit them all in, in great detail, but just so you could see the similarities between Star Wars and these other epic narratives. So uh, the epic narrative begins with the status quo, right? It's what's what, what is my hero doing right now? And we open up and we see Luke Skywalker, who's clearly our heroic protagonist. Uh, and he's on a moisture farm in Moss Eisley, uh, just, uh, or excuse me, on Tatooine, just doing his thing, right? Just, just kind of living his life, uh, wishing for more, wishing for mm-hmm. adventure. Uh, and then after that, the hero receives a call to, to adventure, right? He, he, he is sort of pulled or is asked to leave behind the world he knows and to go on this quest. And Luke Skywalker gets this when Obi-Wan Kenobi uh, asks him, you know, you need to help me save Princess Leia. We don't know it's Princess Leia yet, but we need to help save this woman, right? She, she's, she needs your help, son, right? I'm getting too old for this sort of thing, <laughs> right? Uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi. And so 
you know, Luke gets his call to adventure. But interestingly, in almost every epic, the hero refuses the call at first. He, he's not, he, he may want to adventure, but there's something that holds him back. This is true of the Odyssey. It's true of the Aeneid. It's true of uh, almost every epic that you, that you come into contact with. And so Luke Skywalker says, no, I, I can't go. I, I, I've got chores or you know, yeah, whatever. Right. And so uh, you know, he, he refuses the call. But eventually the hero is forced to accept the call. Uh, this happens in different ways. In Star Wars, you know, there's an explosion. The Empire shows up. And so Luke, Luke goes on the adventure. Uh, there's always a mentor, uh, a, a guide that is there to help the hero on his quest. Of course, Obi-Wan Kenobi is the, I think, one of the best examples of like a good guide. A good guide, Gandalf the Grey um, for Bilbo Baggins is another example of a great uh, guide, a spiritual mentor who's there to help the hero grow on his quest. And is a... a- Again, I'm I'm kind of fascinated here, so I'm going to be the student asking questions. But no, please do, please do. Th- this then would be the role that I think Virgil plays for Dante in the Commedia, right? Yes, absolutely. Okay, uh, um, that's that actually is brilliant on two levels. He's a great guide, but then also he's a literary guide, right? Virgil is sure. the primo poet who's teaching the. Po- it's so great. Anyway, I'm sorry, I digress. Um, <laughs> but so that they go on this quest with this uh, spiritual mentor and. This begins the road of trials. Uh, the hero has to overcome obstacles. He's usually growing in power, in strength, in wisdom uh, as he's overcoming these trials. Uh, for Luke Skywalker, you know, it's uh, overcoming the, it's rescuing the princess, overcoming the Death Star, you know, blowing up the Death Star at the end of A New Hope. These are all things on his road of trials, and the road of trials always leads to what Campbell called the innermost cave. Uh, and this is where the hero mm. is confronted by his deepest fear. Now, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw two things at you here um, about the innermost cave uh, with Star Wars. So uh, I should have said this at the beginning, and I apologize. When I say Star Wars is an epic, I'm thinking of the original trilogy. Uh, I'm not gonna talk about the prequels. I'm not gonna talk about the sequel trilogy un- until the end, and I'll talk about why those things don't count for me. Okay. Cool. In this in this conversation, I'm so, very open to to that uh, that idea. So I'm looking forward yeah, to that I'll, as well. I'll hit that for sure. I'll, I'll hit that at the end. So, uh, so Luke Skywalker in Empire Strikes Back actually goes into a physical cave, right? Right. This is where he's uh, and he confronts a fear. Right. His his deepest fear is revealed to him. Um. So that is sort of put in front of us as his innermost cave. But I'm going to make an argument for a different scene as his innermost cave, if I could if I could be so bold. Sure. Um, I think that clearly we're supposed to see that as his innermost cave. But also another tradition in epic poetry is something called the descent into hell. Uh, and most in, in most epics, um, the hero goes to a supernatural underworld. You know, Odysseus goes to Hades. Um, Aeneas does as well. Even Beowulf goes to the lair of Grendel's mom, mm. which is in this sort of supernatural subterranean cave. Sure. So there's some kind of descent uh, into this supernatural other world. And I argue 
that Luke Skywalker's descent is not the innermost cave where he confronts his fear about becoming Darth Vader, but where he actually fights Darth Vader on Cloud City. And uh, the imagery of that scene, especially when he first ignites his lightsaber uh, in, in Cloud City, it's dark and there are just these massive red spires, very reminiscent of Milton's poetic description of hell hmm. from uh, Paradise Lost, you know, hmm. pandemonium. And so to me, his first fight with Darth Vader, where he loses um, and, it, and his and his deepest fear is kind of actually revealed uh, where it's not his, his fear is becoming Darth Vader, but it's it's sort of fully realized in, you know, I am your father, right? Sure. That's an iconic uh, admission. And so to me, it's, it's that fight on Cloud City. That is Luke Skywalker's descent into hell. And every hero has it. Every hero has to face it. And the hero is never left unchanged by it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Luke Skywalker fits that mold perfectly. So th- that's... I don't know if that's uh, one that would be shared by all my literary critic friends, um, but that that's kind of my argument. That That's the controversial piece, I guess, of my whole thing here. <laughs> well, look, so again, I'm eating this up, but when you were introducing the concept of the innermost cave, I, I immediately thought both of Dagobah and Cloud City, and, and both of those are dealing with the same issue, right? Like I, Luke is in the process of discovering these incredible powers that he has access to. Mm. But is the potential for evil within me going to turn these things from good to evil, right? And the the I am your father line heightens that so intensely because the idea now is it is in my genetic code to yeah. not just become powerful, but to turn to evil and like I'm having to look it in the face right now in a way that's not as easy to do when you're, when you think you've had a vision in a cave and and just to, just to kind of get on board with what you're saying. I mean, the ending of that scene is Luke literally sliding down uh, a long passage where he, he holds on for dear life to the bottom of this space station above a chasm, you know, so, like, it, it seems like the descent into hell imagery is about as intense in that Cloud City section as can possibly be, uh, you know, re- reproduced on screen. Yeah, I agree completely. I think those are all really good points. And uh, just sort of adding on to this argument, I, I'm now more than ever fully convinced that that is his descent into hell. And uh, I think that Lucas, in that scene specifically, understands. Um, I, I want to talk about so many things. So if I get sidetracked, you're going to have to help me get back on track here. But in that scene specifically, he, t- he does such a good job of positioning his characters, creating an environment and using all of the, uh, I'm going to call them poetic devices, but for, for Lucas, it's not in the way it's not in the writing necessarily. It's in the lighting, it's in the set design, mm. it's in the the music score, which I'll talk about here in a minute. Um, those are his poetic devices. And uh, where Homer uses epithets and epic similes, Lucas uses music and imagery um, in his set design. And so uh, that to me, that that scene where uh, he says, uh, what, what does Darth Vader say? Um, the force is with you, young Skywalker. 
but you're not a Jedi yet. Oh man, that is powerful. Like that whole part is just powerful. And so absolutely. That's his descent into hell. I'm totally convinced. Sure. You, you, you sold me, sir. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, just to kind of wrap up the hero's journey section of, um, of, of my argument here, uh, after the descent into hell, the hero has to face his battle with the dragon, which uh, hmm. is typified in the throne room. One of your, if not your favorite scene, if I'm not mistaken, um, when Luke finally squares down with Palpatine at the end of Return of the Jedi. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, he there faces his dragon. And, and what's interesting here is in uh, the epic tradition, the dragon is usually a physical thing that the hero has to defeat. I'm thinking of Beowulf. He actually fights a real sure. dragon. Sure. Um, but I think Lucas sort of takes a Shakespearean um, path here that that Luke's battle with his dragon is actually the temptation to turn. Hmm. Um, and he overcomes that temptation, uh, which is typified in Palpatine. But I think it's more than just the physical emperor that he's fighting. It's the lure of the dark side, which he overcomes. And it's a, such a great scene where he casts the lightsaber side. You know, I'm a Jedi like my father before me. I mean, that is that is Luke overcoming his dragon. I, I, your thoughts. I'll let you. I'll oh, yeah. Uh, I've actually not considered that. I mean, I think everybody kind of gets that uh, it's Vader, not Luke, who physically kills the emperor or, sure. you know, whatever happened to the emperor until we meet him again. <laughs> right. So Skywalker. Uh, but I'm I'm put in the mind of the medieval Christian who saw the growth to uh, maturity in Christ as the mastery of the self, mm. to have the passions rightly subordinated to the will and the will subordinated to the Lord. And it, Christy and I did a podcast talking about the Oscar movies uh, from from this most recent cycle. And Ford versus Ferrari is a movie that that we really like. And the central character there, Ken Miles, is this passionate race car driver. But the victory for him isn't actually winning this epic race. The victory for him is mastering himself. And um, it's saying it seems like in light of what you're talking about here that that Lucas and Luke Skywalker, yeah, are, are running up against the dragon of self. Yeah. And yeah, there's an external tempter in Palpatine, but the real battle is, will I subordinate my passions to this greater good that I know is objectively true? And uh, I, again, uh, maybe I'm I'm buying the propaganda, but I think you're I think you're spot on, and it's his choice to master himself, even if it costs him his life, that actually yeah. provokes his dad to to act on his behalf. And it's a redeeming work, right? Like yeah. his his sacrifice is a redeeming work, which kind of fits into um, the – this is a more medieval um, romantic view of heroism. I'm, I'm thinking now of Charlemagne and the Arth- Arthurian legends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, for sure. But that, that they all kind of uh, typify that, right? Mastery of self, self-sacrifice, shiv- the chivalric code, and Luke Skywalker – kind of becomes fully the Jedi Knight. And actually, you know, it's funny, as we're having this conversation, I'm thinking about what Yoda says right when, in, when he right before he dies uh, or, or becomes one with the Force, uh, when Luke says that I've done it, I've become a Jedi. And Yoda says, no, not yet. Hmm. You, you have to face your final test. 
Hmm. Right. You're not a knight yet. You've got all the power, but you have to map now master the self. And, uh, and then he goes and he does that, which is a redeeming work, uh, which is fantastic. For sure. So you, you already mentioned this. I am in that very small camp who says return of the Jedi is the best star Wars movie. And when you were telling your own story over your relationship to star Wars, I was delighted to hear you started at return of the Jedi. Uh, you know, I, I get that empire is the thing that captures our imagination. I, I now realize it's because Luke's descent into hell is so powerfully portrayed. Yeah. But we don't, you know, as people who live in God's story about Christ, we love that our God was crucified on our behalf and suffered for us. But what we really rejoice in is the resurrection leading to the return of the king, right? And so I mm. resonate with the re- return of the Jedi because we have seen the hero come out of hell, uh, master him himself, uh, pursue good, and deliver basically the kingdom. You, you know what I mean? Like the kingdom is now established because of his choices. So I, I'm all in on on this reading, and it, it sort of has helped me crystallize my own thoughts on why Return of the Jedi has always been my favorite. Yeah, that's uh, that's fantastic. And, and you know, this might be me buying the propaganda, but you've almost got me swayed. I mean, just thinking <laughs> about that, that moment where he cast the lightsaber side has got to be <laughs> – it's so interesting because it's the moment I hate in uh, Last Jedi, right? Like, sure. it's a totally different casting of the li- side of the lightsaber. Um, but when he throws the saber down and says, "I'm a Jedi like my father before me," I mean, that is—it's the culmination of the entire saga, right? Sure. It's the culmination of the entire trilogy, and like you said very clearly, for Christians, that's our hope. So um, that's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I, I know I, I want to be careful. I want to have my foot on the brake here, but. It just puts me in mind of so much that is in Christ, right? That uh, on the cross can 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 summon to His aid uh, countless angels, right? I mean, the the attainment of the Father's will was never a matter of power for Him; it was a matter of submitting Himself to the will of His Father. Yeah, and the, you know, uh, Star Wars can't rise to that, but it can get close enough by saying. The force, the the light side of the force is the ultimate goal. And if that means you throw down your weapon, you don't exercise your power, you even die in pursuit of what is right. That's the right choice. Uh, so, I mean, I can get fired up thinking about this pretty quick. Yeah, that's, that's pretty awesome. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and just kind of end the hero's journey part. There's For the listener, if you're really interested, there are a lot of great um, – resources that sort of break down star Wars. I'm not, this is not groundbreaking. Um, what I'm talking about sure. here, this is done by, by others, uh, smarter men than I. And so if you want to kind of get a more, um, detailed breakdown of the Harris journey that you can find them. Um, but I'm, I'm going to transition now into why I think, um, or, or into more reasons why I think this is a cultural epic. And that is that the hero's journey alone does not make an epic. Okay. Uh, there are lots of great stories that, that use the hero's journey. Um, but what makes something a cultural epic is the, the bare bones of the plot is a hero's journey. But the poet uses elevated tone. Go, going back to my uh, definition from the beginning of the podcast, right? There's, it's a, 
long narrative about heroic deeds. That's the hero's journey part. Uh, but it also captures significant cultural values and has an elevated tone and uses specific literary devices. We have to have those three things as well in order for it to be an epic um, and not just a really good hero story. And this is where I think Luke, this is where I think people don't give Lucas enough credit uh, oh, okay. for the original trilogy, because this to me is where he, it actually becomes the great American epic uh, of our time. And so I'll do, do, do kind of a quick breakdown. The elevated tone, I don't think there's any argument here that the tone of Star Wars is elevated. Um, this comes from the dialogue, the seriousness of the world building, um, the, gr- the special effects, which were groundbreaking at the time, all rise the stake, raise the stakes of the story to um, an elevated tone of good versus evil uh, and underdog versus uh, empire. And so the the elevated tone is there. And I think it's most easily recognized in the iconic score of the film that underlays um, the whole, the whole movie. Now I'm going to give a quick anecdote here. Uh, about why uh, I, I think this. And also, th- it was this moment in my life where I really started to hold on to this idea that Star Wars is the great American epic. For my bachelor party, I'm, I, I've been married, uh, it'll be a year on May 4th. So that's coming up pretty quick. Awesome. Uh, but on my bachelor party, yeah, yeah, super excited that she's still here. May the 4th, actually, is our, <laughs> is our wedding anniversary. So there you go. That works into our conversation. <laughs> Um, but, uh, for my bachelor party, my, my groomsmen, um, took me to the Nashville symphony, uh, in Nashville and we watched empire strikes back on a massive projector screen. And on the stage was a full orchestra and the conductor had a timer on a laptop and every time music would be played on the movie, the music would be played live by a full orchestra. Incredible. So we were watching the film with a live orchestra playing all the music live. And I'm telling you, you have not lived until you've seen Darth Vader marching towards you while the Imperial March is being played by a full orchestra. It is, it, it'll take your breath away. And that, to me, is just such a good example of the elevation of the tone. The music raises the the tone in the way that Homer uses epic similes to raise the tone. That, as I've already talked about, Lucas raises the tone with the dialogue and the set design and the effects, the way that Homer raises the tone with his appeal to the muse and his uh, and his use of epithets and uh, his poetic style, and so you know these are the things; these are the tools that Lucas uses as a storyteller in the same way that Homer uses his tools as a poet. And um, I, I'm I'll, I'll go on the record here for the for the listener and say I'm not like a movie. I don't have any formal training in movie composition. So I'm not like an expert in breaking down movies the way I 
would say I at least have formal training in breaking down poems. Uh, but I think I know enough about composition generally to know that it is the composition of Star Wars, not just the plot, that raises it to this level. Um, your thoughts? Well, it just it just sounds super credible. I'm I'm further behind you in formal training uh, that you've already talked about, but it sounds super credible in that like we all natively recognize that the score is one of the defining uh, wonderful features of this of this uh, narrative arc, right? Like uh, the story is wonderful. I think we all recognize that, but it is enhanced. It would be lesser, mm. maybe is the way to say it, if the if the score didn't rise to the moment. And so when I'm I'm hearing you talk about these tools to elevate the the narrative, it makes sense. What I'm thinking of is taking the resources that are available in print media and trying to do the same thing in visual media, it seems very credible to me that this is what the same uh, effort would look like in a different medium. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you've, you've articulated um, what I hope I've, I'm, this is what I'm trying to say is that it, it's what we see here is a transition of, of medium, right? Yeah. That, that, what poets did with the written text, Lucas has accomplished in the visual medium uh, of movie to, of movies. And and I want to kind of time out here, and or maybe this is a transition into sort of my my last piece of my argument, and that is that uh, storytelling in American culture is not the written text, right? We are a, a culture that is very young in comparison to the other world cultures mm. uh, that, that America has just not been around as long as uh, the great powers of Europe. Uh, I'm thinking England, France, Germany. And so, you know, and, and then before them, Greece, Rome, and even the ancient Sumerians. Sure. And so, you know, we suffer from youth. We suffer from a lack of experience. And, and there's a great literary uh, conversation to be had about the American voice and where does it come from? You know, is it Walt Whitman? Is it Mark Twain? Is it Herman Melville? Uh, is it Hemingway? You know, where, where, who, who is the, the poet laureate of American culture? And, and I, you know, that's a conversation for another time. But I think what Lucas does is he captures in his story the American spirit. Um, the thing that we generally define as being uniquely American. And the thing that I'm talking about that he captures is the rags to riches underdog story. That is brilliant, Joe. Yeah, that just, that smells like truth to me. Well, and the thing is, what's funny about that is twofold. So what's funny about that is we, I think Americans latch onto this as a, as a, as an American trait. Like we, Love this. Sure. What's, in, what's interesting about it is that it's not a uniquely American thing, right? That it's been around for for eons and decades. I mean, the Romans uh, and the Greeks had had these kinds of stories, right? So we adopted them. But I think it is fair to say that Americans culturally, right? Talk about cultural values, which is where this conversation started. The significant cultural value of America is that we stick up for the little guy. Mm-hmm. That that's our that's our thing, right? That's our shtick. 
And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to refer to another piece of pop culture here, right? It's Captain America, right? Yep. That, that he is our cap. He's Captain America. He is the embodiment of American value. And that's his whole thing is that he sticks up for the little guy. He stands in the gap. We love a rags to riches, you know, overcoming great odds. And, and typically, I think we connect this back to the revolution, right? That we were 13 colonies that overthrew the, the oppressive yoke of the empire that was uh, the English crown. Mm. And so I think, that, you know, I'm not a historian, but I think if I were to try and point to something to say, well, why do Americans hold on to this value so tightly? I would probably point to that, that like, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident and, you know, God has made man with these inalienable rights. And, um, you know, that the, our founding documents talk about um, personal freedom and liberty and the pursuit of happiness and, you know, overthrowing the yoke of tyranny. Right. Like, sure. That's woven into our culture. And that's Star Wars. Star Wars is a ragtag group of rebels that overthrow the despot empire, right? Like this, this tyranny of the emperor and that captures the American spirit. Oh yeah. in the American dream, right? So like in doing this, not only do they create a better world, they create a better life for themselves. They create this sheltering umbrella where others can experience this, transformative yes. upward movement. Yeah, man, that, that makes That's, all the sense in the world to me. That is well said. That's very well said. And, and, you know, the other thing too, that I'll say, um, is, you know, kind of in theme with all of this is we inherently, I, I don't even know if this is a uniquely American thing, but we inherently, um, root for the underdog, right? Sure. Like if I go to a sporting event, where I don't know the two teams, I'm going to look around and say, okay, who's it? Who are most of these people rooting for? I'm going to pull for the other guys. Yeah. Right. I'm going to pull, I'm going to pull for the other dog. Um, and, and there's something, I don't know if that's uniquely American, but I do think it, it, it is part of the human spirit is that we pull for the underdog and star Wars does that really well too. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking now through our history as, as we have grown as a culture and as a nation, um, I'm thinking World War One, World War Two, Vietnam. Um, I'm thinking even uh, Desert Storm, right? That America has positioned itself as being uh, the one who's going to stand in the gap for other nations, right? That yeah, that that we regularly insert ourselves into conflicts um, in order to protect the little guy, and so you know you kind of see that in Star Wars. Um, hardcore for so. sure. For sure. Yeah, man. I, uh, I feel like maybe out of, I, I think this is going to end up being like the 61st, 62nd episode of this podcast, but, uh, I've probably learned more on this, uh, on this kind of walk through these stories, uh, with you as my guide. So I appreciate you being the mentor figure for my <laughs> epic journey through epic literature. Hey, I'll be your Virgil anytime, buddy. <laughs> Great. Great. I'm going I'm to call you back up again. If there's a, if there's one final note I can make on this idea of cultural value, and this is, this kind of goes supersedes um, what we've been talking about and goes beyond what we've been talking about. Um, but this is why I think truly 
that Star Wars is is an, an epic, it, and it belongs in the conversation with um, Beowulf and the Odyssey and um, all these other epics that we've talked about. And that is this: uh, epics are created culturally, and they're created to to highlight, celebrate, and pass on cultural values. That that's their purpose. Um, but what what makes something an epic is that it's timeless, right? That the values that are being preserved and passed on mm. are timeless and they apply to other peoples, other cultures, right? That that the Odyssey was written for Greeks, but I take great meaning and great enjoyment in reading the Odyssey despite never having been Greek in my life. And the same is true of all the epics. And Star Wars fits that category. That I went on a missions trip to the jungles of Hinatega in Nicaragua. And while I was driving two hours into the, into the wetlands of Nicaragua to build, um, to build water filters, there were uh, locals that were wearing Star Wars shirts. Yeah. Know? And and like not just that like they, mm. these were shirts that they had found like they knew the characters they knew um, they knew the story they 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 identified with it and so that that's the final piece of the puzzle to me um, you know it's all the things we talked about but this this piece of the puzzle even though it's the last one I think is arguably the most important and and here's where I got to you know kind of pump the brakes a little bit Star Wars is still pretty new sure in regard to these other things, but I'm fully confident that 100 years from now, 150 years from now, um, they'll still be talking about it. They'll still be talking about the original trilogy. They'll still be talking about the sequels and the prequels and, and the anthologies and everything that comes after it. And they'll still be talking about and identifying with all the things that we've discussed. And, and if that's true, if 200 years from now, they're still talking about star Wars, then that's the final, that's the final chink in the armor. And if it's if it's not a chink, if it's solid, then I think we're we're good to say that Star Wars is an epic. Um, that for all the reasons that we've discussed. Yeah. So I'm again completely sold. Um, but I would I would like to know what are the other contenders that we can look around and see. And uh, we talked about this off air. I think uh, I think a lot of people would say maybe Harry Potter. Uh, Lord of the Rings. Uh, well, actually, I guess I should I should do this first. So, and Joe, correct me on any of this, but the idea with these epics is that history has revealed them in such a way that we see they have objective value, not merely subjective. That uh, mm. that epics come to us not because one person decided to write the one story. But because in a world where lots of people were writing stories, lots of people were trying to uh, communicate values through their narratives, this one has stood the test of time. And time has sort of shown us, hey, this one carries merit. And that's kind of the idea of the Western tradition, that history has revealed that there's an objective value in these works of literature, poem, whatever. Yeah. So the assumption is then, if we're thinking about what's going to what's going to play itself out for our culture, uh, you've made a compelling case for Star Wars winning that historic battle for evaluation. 
again, mm-hmm. I went to Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings. What do you see as the other contenders in the in the ring? Yeah, I would say the biggest contender is one you've already mentioned. Uh, Harry Potter would would probably be a, a, a big contender. I'm going to throw a couple of others out there. I, that might be cheating. So, so let me back it up. Um, the other reason why I say Star Wars is the great American epic is because it is it is American from beginning mm, to end. Sure. Right. It's conceptualized by Americans in America, transposing American values. Sure. Um, the Lord, the, the Lord of the Rings certainly fits the mold. But Tolkien was English and was definitely writing for an English tradition. And so I think that disqualifies it as being the great American epic. Sure. It, it, it probably fits the mold of, of epic. And you know my love of Tolkien. So that might be a podcast uh, subject for another time. But uh, I don't think we can, cu- we can call it the great American epic. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to localize to just things that are American yeah. uh, or, or seen as American. That and makes the all the sense in the world, yeah. The one that kind of sticks out to me, I, I don't, and I, I'll be honest, I'm not as nearly as knowledgeable about this, so I don't remember if the books were written by American author. If they're not, then it would be disqualified in my opinion. But The Godfather is what sticks uh. out as as a contender. Um, I, I think it's not as um, compelling to me because the morality of the tale is somewhat ambiguous. Um, and so as far as fitting in the vein of cultural epics, I don't think it, it hits on every cylinder, but it does meet a lot of the requirements that we've addressed here. Elevated tone, um, objective goodness, and use, the use of score and cinematography and dialogue um, as poetic devices. Um, it does have sort of a – it doesn't really have an appeal to the muse it, it kind of does, kind of doesn't. We can argue about that. And then it it it, it uh, transposes American value. It's a rags to riches story, right? Of of a the son of a mobster who who kind of raises the family name uh, into uh, you know out of out of the depths and into into the most as being one of the most powerful families in the world, right? And so, or sure. in the, uh, one of the most powerful crime families in the, in the country. And so it, it meets a lot of those standards. Um, you know, I, I would argue star Wars is more, more so because it, it, it hits on more of the traditions of epic poetry. Mm. Um, the Godfather doesn't, doesn't really lean on the hero's journey as much. It doesn't lean on, um, things like the appeal to the muse, the sent into hell. You're not really going to find those things in the Godfather. Um, you're going to find them in a more general sense, not in a more uh, literal sense. And so it's probably not the great American epic, or at least it's not as good as Star Wars, but that's the one that kind of jumps out to me as being a potential contender. Oh yeah. That makes a ton of sense to me. And that's, you know, that's the next podcast episode we'll have you on for. We'll go through the uh, Godfather trilogy, but uh, you know, to, to whatever degree Wikipedia can be a source, the first line of the of uh, Mario Puzo's uh, Wikipedia entry is that he was an American author, screenwriter, and journalist. And so, Perfect. Perfect. yeah, yeah, I, I was co- I was I felt very confident to say that, but I realized like I didn't know it for a fact, so I didn't want to stand on it. Sure, sure. Uh, but that's yeah. So knowing that, then for sure, I would say that's probably the contender. Okay, well, so I'm gonna I'm gonna make this more difficult for you. Okay. So I see uh, our our country, the United States of America, as part of a continuation 
maybe, you know, I, I guess if you put a gun to my head, I'd say the decline of, but a continuation of the Western tradition. Mm, I would agree. So, so uh, USA, Britain, Germany, France. Um, what's the what's the set of contenders for the Western epic of the either advanced modern or postmodern era of Western history? So I, I'm I'm kind of undoing your qualifications that'll let you narrow <laughs> in on Star Wars as American. So let's go let's go the postmodern West, advanced modern West. Oh wow. That is a that is a good question. Um, so then, in my mind, Lord of the Rings is back on the table. Yeah, Harry yeah. Potter's back on the table. Uh, you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna dignify the sparkly vampire stories, <laughs> but like you know, <laughs> uh, uh, there's a lot more literature on the table at this point. Yeah, that's a man. That's a good one. Um, you know, without having given that question a whole lot of pre thought. I'll, I'll say I'll say what my heart wants to say. Okay, yeah. my heart wants to say Tolkien. Um, my my, I, I don't think that's a bad call. I think sure. one of the things we look at and that we've already talked about a lot here is the cultural significance of the of the story, um, and that and it's it's very fair to say that Tolkien this the impact of Tolkien on culture is unprecedented, sure. right? That he is the father of modern of the modern fantasy novel, um, and and every fantasy novel that has been written in the, in the modern postmodern era falls under his, um, his cat, like in the, under his umbrella. Mm-hmm. And so I think Tolkien is a good argument. Um, I will go on the record and admit that I'm not as knowledgeable in like French and German works of, yeah. of postmodern era. So there may be others that I just am not as familiar with um, that could contend with him. But at this point in my knowledge and in my learning, I would say Tolkien yeah. uh, would be, would be, and, and, you know, he is, Tolkien brings the minutia and the obscurity of myth into the modern light, right? Like he is the one who says, Hey, let's grab all these old mythological stories that are collecting dust on shelves in professors uh, offices and let's pull them into uh, pull them into the light and present them to the public as being good, wholesome, and and worthy of of enjoyment and scholarship. And so, you know, for that reason alone, I think I, I think I land on his shoulders. Yeah, well, that that makes all the sense. That's the one I would go to as well. Uh, almost, um, almost entirely on the basis of the point you made about how it connects with people of various uh, and and pretty contradictory cultural values, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. people who would hate Tolkien's faith end up loving his work. You, you know what sure. I mean? Sure. And as you mentioned, everybody is working with his paradigms uh, in even like sci-fi fantasy sure. is still drawing on Tolkien. You know, there's been that, that upswing in sci-fi fantasy, uh, which I guess Star Wars probably was one of the tributaries uh, on that stream as well. But if you read like modern, you know, go to books a million or whatever bookstore, you know, of that's still surviving and, and pull a sci-fi fantasy novel down, you're going to see Tolkien's uh, DNA, the DNA of Lord of the Rings in that story. 
Yeah, that's that's well said. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. You made the point about people hating his faith. I know of staunch atheists, uh, friends of mine who are staunch atheists who love Tolkien's work and which I I always have sort of a twinkle in my eye. There's sort of a, a smirk that I'm trying to hide because they don't realize that what they're reveling in is is you know, the, the, the shadows and types of the gospel that are woven throughout the story. And so, you know, their favorite parts are when Gandalf, you know, comes back when Aragorn is finally crowned King. Uh, I actually recently watched return of the King, uh, Peter Jackson's return of the King, uh, with my little brother, Toby and cried at least three different times. <laughs> yeah. I know that experience. So it is. I mean, he does such a fantastic job and, you know, that part where Aragorn says, my friends, you bow to no one and the newly crowned fully, uh, realized King of Gondor gets on his knees in front of these four hobbits, these lowly hobbits. I mean, just if that, if you don't cry during that part, you don't have a soul. And and then I'm just going to say that. So, yeah. okay. Well, that would be, that would be, I think that Tolkien would be my, I would, I would place him forward. Sure. And, and I'll just tell you, like, <coughs> I'm, I'm so thankful to hear the report of an atheist loving Tolkien's work. Cause listen, Tolkien is not the gospel. We're all clear on that. Tolkien is not uh, evangelism, right? But he can be useful to create categories, structures of thought, uh, credibility structures that sort of knock down some of the barriers to receiving the gospel will, right? I mean, we trust that the gospel is God's saving power. But as far as you know, our work, we just want to take away every offense that isn't the offense of the gospel itself. And so being able to look at someone and say, don't you really love the idea that there's a greater ultimate value that we're all sort of beholden to? Don't you love the idea that there's a king who's going to come and set the world in accord with that ultimate value? Yeah. Uh, again, it's not going to do the work of the gospel, but it can work as pre-evangelism. And I... I and our listeners can just pray for your friends that love Tolkien, that they would love the God he he was uh, pointing them to. Yeah, for sure. And and to bring it back to our conversation, don't you love the idea of a Jedi Knight who throws down his lightsaber and embraces the light at the at his own destruction to redeem his father? Like, isn't that a great thing? One hundred percent. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so that's the perfect end to this uh, episode, dude. But I'm going to spoil it by throwing one other uh, one other. Uh, contender into the ring that just dawned on me when you said I'm not as familiar with French and uh, German literature. Mm. Uh, Les Mis. I think Les Mis is one of those that has to be considered, you know, in your idea of like a a rising, rising above your circumstances, giving yourself to protect others. Mm. uh, I think Les Mis may be on the short list. Well, and also outside of the gospel, there's no greater, in my opinion, there's no greater portrayal of the, tension between law and grace for right? sure which is which is huge wow that is i'm actually a little ashamed that it didn't come to me i'm i'm, I'm a little i'm a little ashamed of that well it, it it was your statement that provoked the thought in my mind so maybe maybe that's the third one we come on and we you and i just weep our way through late me is because that's right <laughs> i share your affection for it and I, I can't turn off the tear ducts as we go through all the stuff that looks like the kingdom yeah, it is. That is that is well said. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna mull that one over for sure. All right, man. Well, hey, thank you for being so generous with your time. Yeah, man. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. This has been fascinating. And tell your dear wife that we appreciate her uh, letting you be generous with your time as y'all are there uh, together riding out this coronavirus situation. 
Uh, Joe, you have a podcast that we're all eagerly waiting to go live. Do you want to tell us a little bit about script versus manuscript? Yeah. Um, script v. manuscript is a, is a pet project uh, that um, a f- friend of mine, a mutual friend of ours, Terry Gant, and I uh, have started. And it's um, it's a very simple idea. The, the basic concept is we just look at movies uh, that have been that were previously books or uh, books that have been turned into video games or a- a- any uh, story that has been presented to us in multiple different media. And we sort of analyze how the content is handled source to source. We look at, uh, we have a lot of the same conversations that you and I've had today about themes and um, philosophies that are presented. And uh, we ultimately try to do a critique where we land, you know, which one is better. Um, also in that podcast, something that I, I always take lots of joy in, uh, we do a storytelling 101 segment where we um, just sort of break down the basic elements of storytelling uh, in order to assist story, you know, burgeoning storytellers, people who think they might want to be storytellers but aren't really sure how to get started or what they should be thinking about. And we just try to provoke their thought with some with some examples that have been passed down to us throughout the Western canon. Uh, things, for example, things like uh, medias res, something I didn't even talk about. Um, but uh, something that belongs to the canon of epic poetry. So uh, it's a fun time. We we love it. Um, I would love to have you guys come and listen. We'll we'll keep you posted on as far as when it when it goes live. But you can uh, you can find us there on Facebook. Uh, Script v manuscript. There's a Facebook group. There's a quiz uh, where you have to answer a certain number of questions. Uh, and the answer to the Star Wars question. Sorry, Jeff. I know you're going to be. And uh, you're going to be uh, not in agreement here, but the answer to the Star Wars question is that Empire Strikes Back is the best Star Wars movie. Mm. Well, <laughs> I mean, no one gets everything perfectly right, you know. There you go. <laughs> there you go. So I am looking at the uh, the Facebook group right now, and listener, if if you've listened to this podcast for any length of time, you know Terry Gant. He has been on uh, multiple different episodes of the podcast. He's a good friend. He's a sharp thinker. He, uh, I think, most recently he was on. A uh, uh, an episode where we talked about the good, the bad, and the ugly. We did uh, the Legend of Hell House together. Uh, if you've been listening to us, you know you uh, will profit from hearing more from Terry Gant. And I'm I'm sure this episode has taught you that Joe has much to offer as well. So if you want to get in uh, on what they are doing, uh, the Facebook group is listed under script vs dot manuscript. So. If you put script space vs dot space manuscript in your Facebook search bar, you'll get in their their private group. You'll have to you have to you know uh, bow the knee to that propaganda about Empire <laughs> Strikes Back, uh, but you'll get in there and you'll be an early uh, you'll be early alerted to when the podcast goes live. Uh, we're talking with these guys about how we can use Pop Culture Quorum Deo to kind of help get more eyes and ears on that podcast. So you can stay tuned with us as well. Joe, man, you're the man. This was fascinating, super informative. I couldn't be more thankful, man. I just, uh, just overcome with gratitude for you coming on today. Well, listen, man, it's always a pleasure, and I really appreciate you letting me drone, you know, drone on about things that I love. And uh, listener, if you if you took any uh, grain of truth from this episode, then uh, I really appreciate you giving us your time to listen because your time is valuable too. All right. Well, thanks again, Joe. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Man, how great was that, huh? I told you guys I had high hopes for 
this one, and I really believe Joe exceeded all my expectations. I hope y'all had as much fun listening to that as I did conducting the interview. I don't know that I've learned as much in any episode of the podcast as I did on this one. So uh, I'm always down for an opportunity to talk about Star Wars. But man, I found that uh, content Joe was bringing to us fascinating. I hope you did too. I also hope that you find it profitable to your walk with the Lord. I hope that uh, you can see his glory more clearly. And uh, also that you can appreciate how much greater Jesus Christ really is. also hope that you're able to serve your neighbor more ably as we live in a world full of people who love stories because they are created by a storyteller and living in his story. So uh, anyway, I hope it's uh, hope it's profitable to the kingdom. So guys, thanks for tuning in. I hope everyone listening to this is doing well. And again, just appreciate you listening to the show. We're hoping to get back here together with Jared very soon. So be listening for that. Also, don't forget to go to Facebook and sign up, uh, join that script versus manuscript Facebook group for Joe Davis and Terry Gant's upcoming podcast. I think you guys will like that content if you like what we're doing here at Pop Culture Corn Deo. As you can tell, those guys are sharp and well prepared to be profitable uh, listening as you uh, as you subscribe when they get their podcast going. For our purposes, uh, it would be great if you felt inclined to do so, to take some of the time uh, that's available to you and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this podcast. The other thing that I would uh, ask you to consider doing is think about someone who you uh, you know who might enjoy what we're doing here on Pop Culture Quorum Deo and reach out to them and tell them, hey, give this show a listen. I think you might like it. Uh, ultimately, we do want the show to be heard, not for our own glory, but because we think that what we're doing here is helpful to Christians, uh, helpful to the cause of proclaiming the name of Christ, and in some ways useful to His kingdom. And so, Ultimately, we want Christ to be glorified. And so if you'd be willing to reach out to someone in that fashion and make that request, we would greatly appreciate it. Either way, we're thankful you're listening. We hope that this is profitable to you. We'd love to hear from you. So we have our social media handle at PCCDPod on almost any social media platform, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, We'd love to, to hear from you through those platforms. On Facebook, we have the Pop Culture Quorum Deo Perpetual After Party, and we would love to have you join there and participate in the regular discussion that takes place in that Facebook group. That's one of my favorite things on social media nowadays, and so uh, please jump in there and let's talk it over. Uh, guys, ultimately, we, uh, we're thankful for you. We hope we're being useful to you, and we do want to say thanks again for listening to the show. We plan to be back soon with some more content, and until we do so, we want to remind you to live every moment as if you are before the face of God, because you are. We'll talk to you next time.